Thank you guys so much for coming today. How are we doing? Are we doing good this morning? We awake? Packers fans in the room? Nervous? Can you, can you stop the Michael Vick? That's what I want to know. Already been a crazy day of playoffs for those of you football fans. A lot of upsets happening, so watch out, Packers. Um, yeah, right? Yeah, right? Okay. Um, anyway, football doesn't matter, I guess. Sorry. Except for those of you wearing Packers sweaters. Um, thank you guys again so much for coming. Uh, I, my name is Ben Denon. I am the student ministry guy here at Fellowship of Faith. Uh, I also do the worship ministry henceforth while I was singing songs on my guitar. Um, some of you guys I know very well, probably too well, Barry. And some of you guys may not know me at all, so this is great. Hey, I'm Ben. Get to know you later. Um, Dave was supposed to be gone today, uh, and that's why I'm speaking. I'm not entirely sure what happened. He snuck into the last one, so he just wanted a day off, play hooky, I guess. So anyway, I'm just here to speak with you guys. And what I wanted to share with you guys is something um, that's been kind of, I've, I've really been wrestling with, not, not just me alone, but my, our entire uh, student ministry team. In case you guys are not aware of few student ministries, um, it's awesome. And we, I, I'm, I have honestly the greatest youth ministry team on the planet. Um, great group of volunteers like Debbie Meehan and Barry and the Merwins, who, by the way, they're here today for the first time with their brand new baby sitting there in the back. And so I'm, I'm really scared of Michelle. She's a scary person, so I'm not going to embarrass her and bring her up to the middle. But I encourage you, if you've washed your hands afterwards, to go see the baby um, and, and say hi to everybody. And you can say hi to the parents, too. I don't, just a little side note. I don't know what it is. You cease to exist when you have a baby. It's like people come up and like, it will interrupt your conversation and start talking to your baby. And you're like, there's somebody holding this thing here. Hi, I'm Ben. Nice. It is kind of funny. It's really funny because um, when you have a baby, as my wife has found out, nobody cares if you show up. They just want to know where Carter is. Oh, where's Carter? Yeah, hi. Nice to see you, too. I'm, I'm doing well. It was very, very nice of you to ask about me and my life. Uh, so, anyway, I got off track. What was I talking about? Student, min- a student ministry team. So, anyway, I have a fantastic student ministry leadership team. Great group of volunteers. And we have this Monday night Bible study where we meet, and we've been wrestling through a variety of topics. And um, I'm a mean Bible study leader. I assign homework. I, I Get this, I signed a term paper that they had to do at the end of last semester. Yeah, they did it. Minimum two pages, double-spaced, you know, 12-point font, one-inch margins, the whole deal. The whole deal. Graded them for grammar. We did the whole thing. Um, and, and anyway, the topic matter in this paper was, what is a disciple? The, the, the title of this collection of papers is, a disciple is dot, dot, dot. In other words, well, like you see on, on the screen, what is a disciple? Because as we began wrestling with some concepts and we started studying the word, we started figuring out this whole idea of being a disciple was kind of a big deal to Jesus. Kind of talked about it a lot. And if it was a big deal to him, perhaps we should have a closer look at it. So a lot of what I'm going to say today is straight up plagiarized from our, our leaders, um, some amazing ideas that they have, um, and I just wanted to share it with you. Now, I, I don't have a theology degree like Pastor Davis, so feel free to disagree with me. He might be untouchable, but I, I, am, I am not. So uh, keep in mind, I'm not going to give you all the wisdom there is to know on discipleship today. I'm just going to bring up a few points. If you disagree with me, that's awesome. Go ahead and disagree with me. Please try not to be offended. I'll try not to offend. Is that a deal? I'm, I'm curious to see how many pe- pe- people have picked up on this. What is uh, Fellowship of Faith's new, I don't know, mission statement, vision statement, slogan? Disciples who make disciples. 
right? So that's kind of our big deal. I know Dave did a series on discipleship recently. So I, I'm curious to you, uh, um, I normally speak with teenagers, and the only way to keep them from, like, playing with their cell phones and falling asleep is to require interaction. So I'm going to require you guys to talk back to me today. Are you guys cool with that? So what is a disciple to you guys? What do you think? A follower of Christ, okay. Somebody shares the word, is that what you said? Somebody shares the word, I like that. What else? Somebody who, who tries to be like their teacher, like that. What else? What else you guys got? A student. I like that one. I like, I, I like doing this. I look out and everybody's now very occupied with things on the floor. It's like all of a sudden our carpet became really interesting to look at. I like that. Um, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, those of you who know me well, I'm, a, I'm an Apple geek. I'm, my notes are coming off of my iPad. Um, I have an iPhone. And, and there's an app that I love. That's called the, the Dictionary.com app. Anybody who has an iPhone or iPod Touch probably uses this thing frequently. I, I love being able to type in words. So I do this all the time. So I decided, hey, let's look at what disciple means. Let's see what the, the world, anyway, says it is. So disciple. Any follower of Christ. Interesting. A person who is a pupil or an adherent of the doctrines of another a follower. Do we agree with these definitions? Anyone disagree? Just curious. What do you got? What, what do you disagree? How? Say that again? Why would a disciple? Okay, yeah, true. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. There's like 13 definitions. I picked the top two, and they specifically refer to Jesus. So they do, and that's kind of the second one kind of leads you to that idea. It's a person who is a pupil or adherent of the doctrines of another. So technically, it doesn't have to be a follower of Christ, right? It could be a follower of Buddha. It could be a follower of the Ben cult, um, which is not a very interesting one, um, right? I mean, we could have followers of anything, right? So you could be a disciple of something other than Jesus, correct? In theory. Going back, right? Okay. That's a good point. Very good point. Now, one question has come up in our research of what it means to be a disciple. It keeps coming up as much as I don't want it to keep popping up. It keeps popping up everywhere I go. And it's this. Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple. And I'm curious before we dive into it, if anybody is so bold as to, to, to give me their opinion on that. What do you think? Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? Or are they synonymous with each other? That's a good question. Um, I, as can, he, he basically said, if you didn't hear that, is it by like the, Christ, or the, the biblical definition of Christian or is it by the world's defini definition of Christian? Well, okay, let's say it's by the world's definition. What do you say? Okay, so the world doesn't necessarily believe it's the same thing. But according to the biblical definition, what do you think? That they are synonymous. Okay. You guys with us so far? Did, did we catch that? Okay. Yeah. Did we kind of get the grasp of that? Essentially, he, he said he, he, he doesn't think it in practice it comes out in reality because he's running to people who say they're Christians, but it sure doesn't seem like they're a disciple or am I essentially summing it up correctly? Okay. Well, because I'm a, a word junkie, I said, hey, let's look at what... Dictionary.com says about Christian. A person who believes in Jesus Christ, adherent of Christianity. Person who exemplifies in his or her life the teachings of Christ. How do we feel about that definition? Do, do they seem to line up? I mean, do the, are the similarities between the two definitions? Yes, no, maybe. Yeah, it's almost like the two definitions under Christian are almost contra or not contradictory, but not necessarily the same, Right? His belief. Where are we going to look at that? Okay, so you're with me so far. And now I do know this. How, anybody know how many times Christian is, a, a Christian is mentioned in the Bible? Roughly, giving, give or take your translation. 
Okay, according to uh, Wikipedia, which who knows? No, 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 no. This was from my Bible application, so this is legit. <laughs> now Wikipedia. Uh, three times is what they tell me. Uh, three times it is mentioned in the New Testament. Anybody uh, just really feeling smart today and know when the first time it is mentioned in the Bible? The word Christian? Very good. Um, it, it, oh, I lost my notes. Darn you, iPad. Hold on. Hold on. If I lose my notes, we're going to be here all day. Okay, so yes, it is first mentioned in Antioch. It is mentioned uh, in Acts eleven twenty six. The di- disciples were called Christians in Antioch for the first time. Um, some scholars believe it was actually kind of, it, they were named that by the Greeks, the Romans, the Gentiles, the, the non-Christians at the time, and some people feel it was kind of meant to be a little bit of an insult, a burn, you little Christs, you, uh, look at you, little Jesus. Ah. Um, and it was later adopted by the faith. Now, what is, how does Jesus refer to us in, in the Gospels? Disciples, right? Like, I, I, one of the first things that comes to my mind is Matthew 28, 19, 20, which is known as what? The Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say go and make believers. It doesn't go and say go and make Christians. It says specifically disciples, right? Disciple making was important to Jesus. Now we're going to look at that a little bit more deeply. I think, I think in truth, if you want my opinion on it, Christian and disciple are synonymous words, but I think like, like uh, Keith was quick to point out that we have created different definitions of the two. We have, we've almost, as, as ben, and, ben and I did the paper together, our paper, because I, I figured if I assigned them a paper, I should probably do one myself. Um, and and we, we came up with this analogy of we've kind of taken um, discipleship and basic Christianity as kind of like basic cable. I, some people believe that in, you can be a basic cable Christian, but if you want that extra cable programming, you want those extra sports channels, ESPN 17 or whatever, you get, you get you know, discipleship, and now you're this like elite status Christian. You know, I get all the movie channels if I do that. And it's kind of what we've turned it into. We're going to have a look at that for a second, okay? Now, one of the first things that keeps popping up when I've had this conversation with people, one of the first pushbacks I get a lot, and it's actually, honestly one of the first pushbacks I had about this concept that you can't be a Christian without being a disciple. Discipleship is what we're called to. Is when you start studying Jesus' words on discipleship, there's a lot of actions that are required of us, a lot of works. He says things like, you're not a disciple if, if you are a disciple, you will. I mean, a lot of these kinds of things, which then leads to this mindset that you're telling me that I earn my salvation, that all of a sudden it's, it, it's works-based. And that, that makes us nervous, right? Now, first of all, before I dive into the rest of my explanation here, I do want to point this out. I do not believe in workspace salvation. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Where our actions earn our salvation? I do not believe in that. And some people have started to label me as this crazy guy that's preaching workspace salvation. So in big, bold print, boldly, I want you to understand that I believe it is by grace only that we are saved. Are you with me so far? Those of you who have teenagers in my youth ministry are getting a little nervous right now. Wait, where's this guy going? It's okay. It's okay. I do not believe in that. But I, I want to look at something. Growing up um, in the church, it wasn't necessarily expressly taught this to me, but somehow this is what I took out of it. And I, I know I'm not alone in this. That all you need to be saved is believe and accept, right? Believe that Christ is Savior. Accept him as your, believe that he rose from the dead. Accept him, right? Believe and accept. Which led to an underlying belief that actions don't really matter all that much that they're kind of very subsequent to believe and accept, right? 
And, and I want to have a look at that. I want to have a look at some of these, these verses. By the way, I'm going to throw a ton of scripture at you today because uh, I, I need to prove to you I know what I'm talking about. No, I, I just, it's, I feel like I've been compiling a lot of these scriptures. We're just going to blow through them. You guys cool with that? Cool? Okay. So believe and accept. Um, now, here's one of the first verses that comes to mind. It's, it's confess and believe, but close enough. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hear, there uh, should be a T there, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right? So that's classic. It's about confess and belief. Actions don't seem to be in that verse. But somebody pointed this out to me a while back, something that's kind of groundbreaking to me. What are you confessing? Jesus is Lord. What does that statement mean? Jesus is Lord of what? What does it mean for him to be Lord? In control, right? I am subservient to my Lord. I do the will of my Lord, right? So if Jesus is Lord, he's not just Lord of the world. He's also Lord of me. If you're confessing that, right? Jesus is Lord of, of me. So if you follow that logic and Jesus says, do actions, then I'm commanded to actions when I make this confess and, and believe, right? So actions are actually incorporated into this a little bit, right? With me? See how my twisted mind is working? Okay. Feel free, by the way, if you interrupt or if you uh, disagree with me, interrupt me, raise your hand. I'd like to get some, some discussion going. Okay. So keep going. Now here's another classic one, and this is the ultimate defense for um, grace-based salvation, and I love this passage. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's not by works that we are saved, correct? Why is that? So that we can't claim that we earned our salvation. We are wholly dependent on the grace of God for our salvation, correct? Down with that. So again, it can lead to this underlying belief that somehow works aren't all that important. It's about, our, it's about the grace. It's about that. Grace is very important. But rarely do I read on to verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus to do, created to do, God prepared. Okay, so works kind of factor into this, right? You see where I'm going with this? Do works earn your salvation? Nope. Here's, here's what I'm starting to see, and as we're going to dive into some of these verses that Jesus said, his words about discipleship. Though works aren't how you earn your salvation, they're evidence of your salvation. Your works don't earn you your place in heaven, do not make you a disciple, but your, your works are evidence that you are one. So a lack of works in our lives is an indication of a lack of discipleship, in theory, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're buying into my philosophy right here. Okay? We're going to look at that a little deeper. Anybody ready to leave? The doors are there. You can go. It's cool. <laughs> All right. So somehow, accidentally, and I'm not going to lie to you, I wish this would not have happened. Several months ago, I stumbled accidentally upon a part of the Bible that should not be there. It drives me crazy. It torments me at night. It, ever read something in the Bible and you're like, this doesn't make me feel good about myself or anything, really? And ever? Ever? I mean, it, it, when you start reading the Bible and you're willing to admit that maybe this, is, this stuff actually applies to me, um, it gets scary. I actually want you guys to open up this passage because um, I don't want you to trust my bad typing skills. I want you to actually see it for yourself. It's Luke 14, 26 through 28. And you can read all the stuff in between, but especially 33. So 14, 26 through 28, and 33. I'm going to make you do something I make my teenagers do. Um, when you are done, please hold your Bible above your head so I know that you are done. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, thank you. You can put them down. Yeah, it is okay. Pretty wild passage, is it not? 
Does this make anyone feel uncomfortable at all reading this? Or am I the only? Thank you. And anybody else feel? What, what is it? What does this talk about needing to hate? Does that sound weird to anybody but me? Now, I, I was reading uh, for a class recently. I had to read all the Gospels back to back, and I, I did stumble across in Matthew ten thirty seven where there's a little clarification on the hate terminology. He, he goes on to explain that um, by comparison to our love for Christ, they should be very our, our love for others, ourselves, should all be way below. So I, I don't think he's necessarily meaning we should start despising everybody because that seems to contradict the love one another passages. Based on my own understanding, it sure seems like it was more or less by comparison to me. You should be hate. Your love for me should be so great. It seems like your love for your wife is hate. You following me? Is that, so that that's kind of how I've interpreted it. Feel free to throw a Bible at me if you disagree. So you see in here things like anyone who does not carry his cross cannot be my disciple. You cannot be. Oh, he's putting some cants on there. He's putting some conditions on discipleship that require some sort of action as a result. Am I incorrect in interpreting it this way? He says, wait, you guys need to count the cost before you decide that you're in. He's basically almost, you know, he's not, but it almost come across the first time I read it. He's almost trying to talk us out of being his disciple. Now, I know that's not what he's doing, but that was my first take on it. He's going, hey, whoa, before you join this little party wagon, you need to think about actually what it's going to cost you because there's a lot of cost to being my disciple, a lot of sacrifice, right? You know, something struck me. I, I you hear this a lot. It it's, comes up a lot in the Bible, this whole carry, carry your cross and follow me. Now, in the back of my mind, I think of carrying the cross as, you know, for most of my life, it's okay, I got to carry something. It's kind of heavy. It's kind of uncomfortable, whatever. But, yeah, anybody in, this, in here see the movie The Passion, Mel Gibson's, you know, epic drama about the death of Christ? Well, I, I had never really, I don't know, I had never been able to picture what it was like the actual carrying of the cross part. When you see the passion and you see, you know, he's been torn apart and his flesh has been ripped off his body and they throw this rough wood thing on his back and it's like he really dragged this scene out for what seemed like 12 minutes and he keeps like falling down and the cross falls in slow motion, Jesus is falling and all this stuff. But it really, I think, did a good job of illustrating how ridiculously difficult it was carrying the cross. See, to me, carrying the cross was just about, okay, I know I'm going to have to die to self not an actual means of torture. I mean, Jesus carrying his cross was torture. That in and of itself was very difficult. And it makes me wonder sometimes if my life is really comfortable and not really giving up a whole lot for Christ, do I have a cross on my back? It makes me wonder that sometimes. And I tell you what, nothing makes Americans more uncomfortable than this idea that we have to give up everything that we own. Because in all reality, and me and my wife, you know, we're, we're a paycheck-to-paycheck family. We don't exactly have lots of money sitting in our bank account or any. Um, and, and so I like to think of myself as somewhat poor. Oh, poor Ben. Doesn't have much. Doesn't have the greater things in life. But I'm the rich young ruler. I make more money a year than like 95% of the world. Statistically, I'm not even making that up. I'm rich compared to most people in this world. If I were to transplant my income over to most places in this world, I am obscenely wealthy. Not only do I have a house over my head, I have empty rooms. <laughs> I have a spare bedroom that nobody uses. I'm not even sure what goes on in there. The cat probably just has parties. I don't know because I don't go in it. You're right. I mean, I'm, I don't wake up going, geez, I wonder how I'm going to find food today. I obviously find food and I find it to abundance, <laughs> right? I am obscenely wealthy. So the idea of Jesus saying, hey, rich young ruler, you need to sell everything and come to me. I'm like, what? 
or give it to the poor and follow me. Now, I'm not mandating that everybody needs to go home and sell all of your possessions. I heard somebody teach once on the rich young ruler story. I know I'm kind of on a tangent. And I like what he said. He said, I, I don't believe that Jesus was calling everybody to sell all of their possessions. But I also don't believe he wasn't calling anybody to sell all their possessions. And his response was, those of you who are sitting here reading this going, oh man, whew, that's a relief. You're probably the ones who need to sell all your possessions. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay, God, I'll, I'll sell my clothes, but not my iPad. Please. I can't. Really? I don't know how I lived without it. Right? I mean, we're so clung to these things, and Jesus is going, no, no, no. It's all about me. Being my disciple means giving up everything, the willingness to give up everything, your families, your possessions, because everything is meaningless without me. All right, moving along. You guys with me so far? All right. So, you know, there's a sacrifice. This is cost that goes in discipleship. It's not easy, but I don't think that defines us. I don't think our being a disciple is just about bearing the cost because, well, what does that look like? That is very different for everybody, right? Everybody's costs might be, look a little bit differently, and that doesn't answer the question for me. It's a kind of a hint at what it might entail, but what is actually a disciple? What does it look like? Well, what I'm going to share with you now is just some of the points that came out of our papers. This is in, by no means a complete look or complete definition of what a disciple looks like, but this seems to be some common themes that we have come across. First thing I would say is a disciple is someone who obeys his commands. You know, it says to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're my disciples, you'll hold to my teachings. I think that has two implied commands in there. One, obey, right? Obey what I do. Hold. It says hold his teachings, though. Doesn't that imply we should probably know what they are? I mean, how can I obey what I don't know, right? I think there's an implication that we should probably, I don't know, try and get to know him a little better, study him, it, for, for the longest time, I resisted reading the Bible. Because, <laughs> you know, what do I need to read the Bible for? I got Dave for that. I share with me what I need to know on Sunday mornings, and I was regurgitated on Sunday nights. Now you're really scared if you've left the teenagers with me, right? No, I'm just kidding. I do read the Bible, but I, to me, it was more of an academic thing, okay? I'm going to read the Bible so that I can share with others about Christ. But something really has kind of shifted in my thinking in the last six months. When you start to study what it means to be a disciple, it means your will kind of dies, you replace it with God's. You pursue the things of Christ. And that's scary if you're not reading the Bible because if I'm giving up my will then, and I don't know what God's is, then what on earth am I supposed to do with my next steps? Reading the Bible is as much about personal discovery as it is teaching other people. Does that make sense? I, learn, I read the Bible to learn more about me, to learn more about who I am because I am not here anymore. It's Christ that's supposed to replace me, right? Right? You with me? So in order to get to know what God wants from me in my life, I have to read the Word, because that's where it's found. You have to know His teachings. Interesting. No, another thought on the whole commands thing. Here's another one. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. And that, that comes out of a pretty harsh uh, area about the whole remain in me concept. And, you know, if you want to stay in my love, what do we do? We obey His commands. Again, the implication, I think, is we probably got to know those commands. I've got to be honest with you. Dave is a great teacher, but Dave does not teach me everything I need to know about Jesus on sun, one hour on Sunday mornings, even if I come to Bible study. I don't think I can get it all from him. I think that's why we have the Word. I think that's why we have other Christians. I'm not knocking you, Dave. I, I, I get a lot from you. Is that cool? Especially the beard, liking the beard. Well, the, so obeying 
could could be a, 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 an action, right? It works, but it, it's important. It, it's something that's necessary. Well, here's another thing that I think is evident of a disciple. A, a disciple bears fruit. What does that mean? I mean, it says it here. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What does it mean to bear fruit? could mean to make more disciples. I heard somebody argue this. I, I didn't hear their, their basis behind it. I'd be curious to look into it more. But he said, you're not a disciple until you've made one. I thought that was interesting. I also he could be a complete idiot. I don't know. I just heard that. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, what, what do you think it means to bear fruit? Is it just disciple making? There you go. I mean, we have all those fruits of the Spirit thing. Could it apply to that? Maybe. But in some way, your life should be a reflection. It's kind of like, there's this quote that I absolutely love. I've quoted it a billion times by St. Francis of Assisi. It says, go into all the world and preach the good news, and if you must, use words. And the concept is your life should be a reflection of the gospel, not just your words, and how many of us make our words the reflection of the gospel, and our actions, not so much. I mean, that's me a lot of the time. You know, uh, sure, when I'm here, oh yeah, my actions really reflect it, but ask my wife. <laughs> Sometimes my actions are not so much the fruit of God, Right? And Jesus says, whoa, you will show yourself to be my disciple by what you do, not by what you say. There's an action required of us. And here's, here's another th- third thing that seems to come up a lot with being a disciple. And Debbie, you stole my thunder because I probably stole it from you. But um, the idea here is that a disciple is someone who makes disciples. That is, an, that is an explicit command of all disciples. Go and make disciples. We already looked at the verse. Did it say go and make a disciple? I even like the fact that he threw in plurals on us. Dang it. Right? I mean, I remember doing a teaching on this uh, a couple years ago and with the students, and, and something really struck me. It really hit me. How many disciples, if I made a disciple in the last five years, intentionally done it, let alone plural, and that, uh, that's a command of all of us. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes, often, youth min- or li- ministry leaders will sit around and we'll, we'll, you ponder greatly how on earth can we grow the church and how can we do this? Not Dave and I, we just, you know, go to see movies and stuff. But um, some leaders really ponder, what do we do to build the church? How do we grow? And, well, it's not really a program, I don't think, all the time. Evangelism is, is not a board or a committee. It's you. <laughs> Making disciples is something that is required of all of us. But we look at all this discipleship stuff, and I just threw a few examples out there, and we could, we could talk for days and days and days about what it means to be a disciple. The worship team's going to go ahead and come on up. One thing that seems to be certain to me is that this concept of discipleship is really hard. Uh, it's not easy to be a disciple, and Jesus talks about that a lot. It's also required of us. And I was reading, I've been reading this book, and he, the, he goes great length. You know, we studied the cost of being a disciple, and it's great. There's a lot of personal sacrifice. There's a lot of surrendering. There's a lot of saying, God, my will doesn't matter. It's your will. And just doing whatever Jesus says, regardless of the consequences. That seems to be a common theme. But he raised a greater question. What is the cost of non-discipleship? And it's not just you. I mean, sure, if you're not a disciple, it's going to possibly cost you your salvation, your eternity, whatever. What is the cost for the people around you? I mean, People can quickly turn the teachings of Jesus into a social justice thing where all we need to worry about is the poor and all we need to do is all that because he obviously worried a lot about the poor, the marginalized, the broken. And I'm not saying that our faith is about those things because, again, you aren't saved because of helping the poor. But that's a natural outflowing of Christ in you. 
So if Christ isn't in me and I'm not giving up the, the discipleship things, who is being hurt because of my actions? One, things that, one of the things I don't like to think about as a Christian is my faith walk affects other people. I want to think that my faith walk is about me. That's, you know, that's the American individualized, I am an island, I settled the West. You know, that's, our, that's the American idealism. But every action that you have has an opposite and equal reaction. And all the cost of a lack of discipleship, all that going and making stuff, if I don't go and make, Jesus doesn't have a backup plan. That's why he called me. That's why he called you. And if I'm not doing the good works that he's called to do to help the marginalized, help the poor, or just learn about him more, what is going to be the cost of that? We wonder why the church in America, statistically, you can disagree with me all you want, but statistically, the church in America is actually failing right now. We are going the wrong way. We're trending down, not up. And this is an alarming thing for student ministry leaders because students are fleeing the church as quickly as they can. Every year, the statistics get worse. More and more students are leaving the church never to come back. Every year, teenagers, it's getting worse. Now, why does that only scare the youth leaders? I don't know, because who's going to be the, who's supposed to be filling up our churches in three years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, with those teenagers who aren't coming back? Statistically, statistically. I can show you the statistics later. We should be alarmed by these things. And I think it's because for many of us, and I know I'm talking to myself here, not to you guys, we've abandoned this concept of discipleship. We've turned it into an easily attainable thing, believe and accept. And the cost of non-discipleship erodes the church. If you don't believe me, look at Europe. Look at the empty cathedrals in places in Europe. Now, God's doing some amazing things up there. I'm not denying that. But the church of God can shrink. Will it fail? Ultimately, of course not. But can, it, can the church of God fail in America? I believe so. Will the light of the church ever extinguish? Absolutely not. But can the light of the church in America extinguish? I think it is extinguishing. We talked this morning about unity, and, and that's a whole other topic for a whole other day, but that is the, the cost of non-unity is destroying the church in America. Jesus holds us to high standards, and it makes us uncomfortable to read things like, if you don't, you can't, and if you can't, you won't, and all these types of statements. But Jesus put them in there for a very explicit reason. Because the cost of not doing them is greater than we can ever know.